Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway and beyond. I'm your host, Variety's theater editor, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'll be talking to Joshua Jackson and Lauren Ridloff. Jackson is an actor you'll recognize from his long career in TV, where he spent six seasons as Pacey on Dawson's Creek and later played lead roles in Fringe and, most recently, the Showtime series The Affair. But if the name Lauren Ridloff doesn't ring a bell, that's probably because this is her first professional acting gig. The actress, who was born deaf, co-stars with Jackson in the Broadway revival of Mark Meadoff's 1979 play, Children of a Lesser God. Jackson plays James, a teacher at a school for the deaf who becomes romantically involved with a former student named Sarah, played by Ridloff in the role that won Marley Matlin an Academy Award for her turn in the 1986 film adaptation opposite William Hurt. Jackson and Ridloff are here with me in the studio, along with an interpreter who will speak for Ridloff. Lauren and Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes, it's great to be here. So we're talking, and oh, also welcome to Candace. Sorry, right. before I forget, <laughs> I should introduce Candace, who's speaking for Lauren. Um, thank you for being here too, Candace. Um, and I, uh, we're talking just as the show has begun previews. So you've mm-hmm. done, I don't know, five or six, right? Um, less than a week. Uh, how's it going? Um, you start. Well, I, honestly, I think, I mean, you see us here with smiles, so that's the... So far, so good. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's the honest truth right no there. No disasters yet. And what's been the biggest surprise so far, Lauren? Hmm. You mean the biggest surprise of for being on Broadway? Well, yeah, for instance, <laughs> but doing the show for the first, the first six or seven times, what's it been like? What really has been surprising to me is how full the house is each night Mm -hmm. and we're just beginning our previews so we finished our fifth show i guess yesterday and it is wonderful to see the audience at the end of the show because for me speaking for myself as a deaf actor i'm not hearing the audience during the show so i'm not getting that kind of feedback it's a black void to me out there but when the lights come on for our curtain call and i can see the audience it's been nice, a really nice surprise. Yeah, I bet. And so this production of Children of a Lesser God is directed by Kenny Leon, who is the Tony-winning director of Fences and Raisin and Son with Denzel Washington. And then Josh, you worked with Kenny in 2016 on Lydia Diamond's play Smart People yes. off Broadway at Second Stage. Yes. Was that how the project came to you, first of all? Was it through Kenny? How, yeah, how it came to me. So Kenny had been working on it for, I think, several years at that point beforehand. And it was a piece that he had wanted to do, um, I think, for yeah, four or five years, let's say. And it was through the process of working together on Smart People that he brought it up, and we started talking about it. And I, I loved the experience of working with him on Smart People. Why? Um, he's a he's a combination of a lot of things that I have rarely found, maybe never found, inside of one director. So he is an unbelievably trustworthy set of eyes. Um, has has an incredible sense of story he was an actor so an incredible sense of how to like the places to find emotionally inside of a story he is unbelievably dedicated and he's very blunt (laughs) he's very very blunt and i really appreciate 
the not having if he can say something in 10 words he doesn't use 11 um and so and i appreciate that that the that you know once you get to the place of trust with him you can understand that anytime he tells you something and and sometimes it's not easy to hear it it comes from a place of a co-conspirator rather than that place of like needing to break you down so you also had a spectacular cast in that show. We had you had Mahershala cast. Ali, yeah. who was, yeah. I think, post House of Cards, pre Oscar for Moonlight, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and Tessa Thompson was in it as well. It was a great, yeah. great group and, of people. And Anson right? is the fourth. Yeah, the Anson, fourth. Right. yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the he, I mean, Kenny by reputation attracts good people. So, um, so yeah, I, I had a tremendous experience with him on that, and we sort of lightly talked about working together again. He had this thing, but it was nebulous at that point. And then as it came closer to fruition, he called me and asked me if I had children. He had children. Yeah. Children. Yeah. Had ch- right. yeah sorry. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, as we got closer to, he, by the end of that year, he was really frustrated with the process of kind of talking around it. And so he put together a read through and he asked me if I'd be a part of the read through and said, he put together a group of actors that he knew and wanted to work with and had found this amazing woman that right. he thought might be good for the leading lady. Well, and <laughs> this is a pretty extraordinary story, Lauren. Um, tell us a little bit about how you first met Kenny and uh, and then how that went from there. Yes. Well, so Kenny had an acquaintance that he had reached out to in Boston. And it, he decided he wanted to learn more about the deaf community, more about the language. that For his work used. on this play. Yes. Yes, yes, to prepare for this. At that time, I don't think he was even sure it was going to go forward or that he would do it. He was just considering it before going ahead. So he wanted to explore the relevance of the story in terms of the deaf community to today. He It just shows you how brilliant Kenny is because he was willing to invest an amount of time and research and preparation to make sure he really wanted to commit to the project before going forward. So anyway, this acquaintance connected the two of us, and we met for coffee in a coffee shop for the first lesson, and I was teaching him. I taught him basic signs. I refused to teach him how to spell the alphabet because so many people learn that and end up just using finger spelling as a crutch. So I was <laughs> tough with him and said, we are not starting there. It was a great experience to be his teacher, He was my student for a year. We would meet once a week. And we would talk a little bit about the play. And he expressed interest in having me work with the play as a consultant. And what were you doing... In general, at the time, what were you were you teaching ASL? Is that is that how you were making a living, or what were you doing? Well, at that moment in my life, I was a stay-at-home mom. (laughs) Before then, I had been teaching kindergarten and first grade for almost ten years in a public school here in Manhattan. Anyway, so at that time, I just happened to be a stay-at-home mom. And when I was offered that opportunity to work with Kenny, I thought, sure, a chance to get out of the house once in a while. <laughs> I'd just get a little bit of a break from my sweet baby boy. Sure. <laughs> so, and then here we are today. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. And what did you think when he first proposed? How did he broach the subject of, hey, you want to be in the play? And... What'd you think? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, he's a sly fox. <laughs> <laughs> he, it, he, it, he pretty much dropped off the face of the earth after 
we initially had met, he had a few other projects, some TV work. So then one day he contacted me out of the blue and said, would you mind meeting with the casting director to get ready for auditions and stuff? I, I'd like to fill you out and talk about some of the specific details to do this reading. So I went to meet him and the casting director. It was Bernie Telsey. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I was, quote unquote, auditioning for the role. But in the end of our conversation, the casting director, Bernie, said, you know, asked me if I would like to participate in the reading. And honestly, at that time, I didn't even know what a reading meant. So I thought, okay, sure, I'll try that. And so then they gave me more details and they said, oh, you're going to do this reading with Joshua Jackson. And I thought, okay, well, that's cool, you know. And we met and we did that first reading. And then Kenny pulled me aside after that and he asked me, if this goes all the way, are you willing to go all the way too? And I said, yes. Why? Yes. I asked myself that very question. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I wanted to, because it shows that it's important to me. I think Children of a Lesser God is a classic story. And is it a story that's been done so many times all over the country, in high schools, colleges, local theater communities? And I think it's often done with a white woman. And so I think this was a chance to really show Sarah as a person of color. And did, was is Children of a Lesser God personally meaningful to you? Did you know the story and connect with it previously? Well, actually, my parents took me to see the movie when it first came out. I think that was in 1986. Six, or, 86, actually. Yeah. I just looked it up. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. But thank you. Thank you for doing your research. I should know <laughs> no that. No problem. So, 1986. I think I was eight at the time. But it was the first time I saw a deaf woman not speaking on the big screen using sign language in American Sign Language. And at that time, I didn't even honest, I couldn't even understand everything she was saying because I had been grown up using signing in English order. And I am so thankful to my parents because it looked so beautiful on that screen and I was seeing someone like me, uh, you know. So for me, it's a personal, meaningful experience. Wow, that sounds like a <laughs> lot of pressure actually to sort of take that on, something that is so meaningful. Well, no, not Great. really, because I really don't know. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> and now you do. Yes. So, oh, yes. Now I definitely know. But even now, uh, I mean, as long as we are telling the story truthfully, I mean, that's the buzzword in our rehearsal room always with Kenny. He just keeps reminding us that we are here to tell the truth and to be truthful. And in our telling of the truth, that takes all that pressure off, I think, because if we can find a way and find a way with Josh and with all the other actors there to share the truth with everyone watching us, how can we go wrong? How is Josh's sign language? Josh, <laughs> Josh, how do you, how is it? Okay, I, I know that. <laughs> No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Josh is new to signing, so he is a new signer, but he is so natural. Hmm. I think that 
deaf people that grow up, we meet so many people who don't sign well. And, and so we develop this sixth sense about a person. Do you have it? Are you going to be able to learn it? Or there's no hope for you. Sorry. (laughs) So we develop that. (laughs) But with Josh, I really will say from the first time I met him, I knew he had it. I was never worried. Kenny made the right choice. And so you did it last summer at the Berkshire Theater Group. Mm -hmm. Um, And what did you learn about the play doing it there? What was it? What were the the takeaways from that for you? Well, that it worked. I mean, you know, that's the first time I had the chance to do it. And the process of rehearsal was such a tremendous learning curve for me. Did you know the play, Josh? I knew the play. I had I had also seen the movie when I was a kid. But truthfully, the I mean, I only remembered it vaguely. And I think that the only time that I had seen the play was when I was in high school. I don't think it was a high school production, but I think it was a play in Vancouver. Um done at a very small playhouse and so I didn't know it that well and I hadn't seen it done uh, at a high level and truthfully it wasn't until we did the first read through because even the reading of it is difficult for a hearing person or a speaking person I should say Mm -hmm. because the reading of it because the translation of her signs is in English on the page the reading reads repetitive right and I and it's maybe a failure of my own imagination, but as I was reading it, I was like, God, there's a lot of repetition in this in this play. Until we, of course, are doing it in the first read through, and I'm like, Oh no, dummy! <laughs> She's <laughs> signing the other half. <laughs> so, right. So yeah, it tells and are you, you then speaking some of those? Lines? I know there are super titles as well. Is that there's super? Right? Well, for, yeah, for the for the hearing audiences, the way that Mark has structured it is that if that James is doing what's called simcoming, which is signing and speaking at the same time. Right. And uh, James, your character. Sorry, yeah, yeah. James Leeds, pardon me. Um, and then it, it, in the times that he's not directly uh, translating Sarah's signs into just repeating what she's saying or interpreting what he's saying through his own response, you know, implying what she's just signed, he is speaking in her first-person voice. So for the hearing audience, the story is definitely communicated. And then the supertitles, I think, bring in... The, in the places where the play is not specifically not designed for a deaf audience, the supertitles t- bridge that gap. Because we don't put any of Sarah's dialogue, and I don't think actually any of the signed dialogue, into the supertitles. It's only the oh. spoken English that's in the supertitles. Right. Oh, okay. So it's, so, and, it's, and it's built into the set, right? It's not a scroll that lives on top right. that is something outside that is not... A, it is an integrated thought about from the moment that the play started. Like, it is a part of our play. And Lauren, for you, stepping out on stage for the first time, what was it like? Did it come naturally? Were you nervous? What was the what was the experience like for you? On the stage in the Berkshires, I it wasn't really the first time ever being on stage. I am comfortably I was comfortable being on stage, but I had never been a professional actor. I'd been on stage for other reasons, public speaking, uh, small things that I had experienced. So. For me, um, it was such a challenge. It was scaring. First, that first reading was so scary. The play, what the play was asking for me, particularly at the end, it was really a challenge. And I had to face some of my own emotional demons, my own demons. No, no. Well, 
I don't want to go into all the specifics. You have to come see it. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. But, but I just mean, do you mean emotional uh, challenges is what, the in terms of... The, you know. Yes, definitely partly em- my emotional challenges, but also even my own values. What I thought was important, this play was questioning for me, and I had to really suspend... I don't even know what to say, uh, how to say it. Um, I had to really change my own mindset in order to be able to do this play. And so I had to give up something that I had promised myself a long (laughs) time ago that I was going, I had promised myself I had to let go of that to go ahead and do it. It was so freeing. It's changed my life in many ways. And especially when it comes to Mm, just being who I am, using my voice, laughing, being here, being it's been an amazing journey for me. Josh and Laura are having a signed yeah. conversation. I I don't know. Josh is asking me and I don't know if I I should. Yeah. I don't. I, well, I, uh, <laughs> 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 I just had a conversation that I didn't understand. Sorry, Sorry. Did, not to cut you out like that, but I just right. wanted to ask yeah. her a private question. I like that. Yeah. Oh, I like it. It's good. Um, and so this production is set at the time it was written. Is that correct? And yes. sort of the late uh, yeah, I mean, ish, yeah, yeah, ish, ish. Right. Yeah. Why was that decision made? Was there any thought of updating it to now? Uh, yeah, I, Kenny and Mark definitely had conversations about trying to, you know, how would we do it, and if we did it, would it add anything? And, you know, and the advent of cell phones has changed communication inside of the deaf world. And now video chat actually has changed it again, revolutionarily. Um, And, you know, they, I I think I I wasn't in those conversations, but as Kenny has described it to me, every time they tried to put something in it, it just, it it stuck out, right? And I think what Kenny realized is that it is, you know, it's in the pantheon of great American plays. That's why it was such a, a smash success when it first came out. And it doesn't need to be updated. It can play as it is because the things that are outdated, no cell phones, uh, bell bottoms, <laughs> those are now specific and that, you know, it sets it into a time and place. But the universality of what's going on in for a, for a deaf woman and, and or two deaf women and a deaf man, and frankly, just in love and interpersonal relationships and having nothing to do with deaf and hearing the messages are both specific and very, very broad, right? The inability to see each other, to truly communicate, to respect each other as you are, that's not just an issue of deaf and hearing. That's an issue of human and human. That's right. That's right. Kenny said that there were maybe some little things of catching up the technology that's available today to consider putting that in and then decided, you know, it would have not, it wouldn't have the right effect that, that phone scene that we have in the play where James is frustrating, tr- frustrated trying to interpret for Sarah, if we tried to modify, modify that to a video relay service, what deaf people use today, the whole point of the scene yeah. would be lost. We'd have to get rid of the scene. And the point isn't technology. The point is James and Leeds, uh, James yes. Leeds and Sarah's human connection, and that is timeless. Um, and... We have a hard time listening to each other always. doesn't matter if you're deaf or hearing. doesn't matter that we have more ways to communicate via texting or tweeting or Facebook or FaceTime or all these ways we have. I, I think we all are more deaf 
than ever. All of us. <laughs> so, and the pun is intended. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and so on Broadway, um, as it, as in the sort of broader entertainment industry, people are very interested and very concerned about issues of diversity now. But I feel like often in the conversation, people can sometimes neglect to include the idea of uh, representation of people with different abilities. And what do you hope this production of Children of a Lesser God does for that conversation? No, just kidding. <laughs> well, actually, I will. I'm, I'm happy to jump in. It's kind of not my place, but... Um, no, go for but it. The, you know, I think partially representation is is critically important, right? And we only need to see what's been going on in the last couple of years as, as particularly black faces have been uh, more represented in, in broad popular media. Like we've just had Wrinkling Time, Black Panther, just thinking of two big movies right now. And you only have to talk to any child, well, black or brown child, to, to, and after they walked out of Black Panther to understand the incredible importance of that. I also think that because the canon of, of Western theater is predominantly white and predominantly male, it is incredibly important to throw away the ideas of what those characters are supposed to be. And unless there is something intrinsic about the whiteness or brownness or blueness or greenness, whatever, of the character, we need to get past the traditional versions of, of that casting. And I also also think that for the purposes of this play, what is so brilliant about the casting of Lauren is that it's incidental representation. We didn't change a single word of the play. There's no I mean. need to make a change. And that's the amazing thing about that. Also, this play, I think, reaches out to such a diversity of people out in the world. And I think everyone who comes to the play is going to find someone or something on that stage that they're going to connect to through the whole story. They're going to identify with one of us. I mean, we've talked about it before. People in the audience can have said they'll laugh at different times or they'll cry at different times. I mean, there are times when the audience will feel, parts of the audience will feel excluded. There's one, there's a part where maybe there's only hearing people talking or James and Sarah are signing to each other and there is no spoken word there. So I think all that's beautiful. It's, it's a, a great universal access for the whole community. Lauren, you mentioned earlier the idea that um, it's, you don't hear the audience respond when you're in the show. Do you have an awareness of an audience in terms of their response and how a show is going? I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of the audience. It's different how Joshua does it. Joshua says he gets feedback directly from the audience. He can hear if someone's leaning forward or yawning or, you know, any of those. I get that information through Josh. And sometimes just going on stage, I can see Josh's energy. He's on fire. And then I know, oh, I know what the audience is doing to him because I <laughs> see it through him. And I go, oh, that must be the audience is responding really well. Or other times I'll look at him and I can see that the audience maybe isn't as responsive one night. And after each show, I'll ask him, so how was the audience? You know, And we'll talk about it. Does he ever say anything surprising in answer to that question? Do you always read him right, I guess is my question. <laughs> no, I don't, and that's why I asked <laughs> right. you know, how the audience was, because sometimes I can't tell. Right. 
but I do get information from him. Sometimes it might surprise me one, maybe I think a scene was terrible, you know, or uh, totally not respecting women in general or something in a scene. And sometimes people will, there's a scene that I think that, but he'll tell me people laugh at that. And I think people are laughing right now. So there is surprises. There are surprises, I guess. Sometimes there are backstage cues that are audio. Do are they changed? How how are things changed backstage for um, for everyone in the cast? Well, again, this is my first time on Broadway, so I'm not sure. <laughs> True, you don't have a comparison, yeah. right? I don't know what is standard out there. What other people are doing? But what works for us deaf actors backstage is. There are cue lights. There's a whole cue light system in place. So when the light goes off, we know that's the time to go on stage. And that really works. The crew also has learned some signs so they can communicate with us. And before the show, um, we do have interpreters backstage that help make sure communication is easy. And it's been great and important that the crew signs. And the act, all of the actors, I mean... We have such a great trust level with between all of us, I think. We should also mention that this uh, production is, in addition to the super titles that we talked about, there's closed captioning available, I believe, at every performance, and then yep, ASL right. interpretation at some performances. Is that is that what I have? Yes. Right. Yes, that's right. right. Yes, right. you got it. And that seems important. That's the, in order to... So everyone can come see this show, right? Yeah. So... Again, I won't mention the name of the show, but they, but as I'm learning things and I'm surprised by things as I'm getting access into the deaf world. So a couple weekends ago, I went to go see a show and I had a bunch of opinions about it and, and really wanted to talk to Lauren about it. And I was like, so are you going to get a chance to go and see this? Because I want to talk to you about this because there's so much stuff and I'm not quite sure how you think about this and that. And I just trust your opinion. And she's like, well, no, I'm not going to go see that show because it's not accessible to me. And they, they are not making... Gallopro is the name of the app. They're not making that closed captioning available and they don't have interpretive performances. And so, and this is a Broadway show. And I was frankly shocked. And then not that shocked, but but shocked, right? That it should not be that she is not invited into that experience. Um, one, because I want to talk to her about it, but two, because it's just wrong. And so the fact that that's still happening is not really acceptable in in today's day and age because because the avail- because the opportunity exists to make that not happen right. and not every show needs to use super titles this it's a design element for us it adds to our show but there's no excuse for not having for the deaf community for not having um uh, the Gallopro app or some other level of accessibility, it would be as though, you know, it would be like not having wheelchair spaces in the in the theater anymore and not allowing anybody who wasn't ambulatory to not be invited into the stage. And so it's just not acceptable in the modern world to not, particularly for a Broadway show where there is the money and where there is the time and where there is the scope to not make shows accessible to deaf, but also to every community as much as possible. And then, actually, Lauren said something I hadn't even thought about, which is so very true, that a huge part of the not deaf but hard of hearing community now is baby boomers. That that as they age out and retire, that their hearing is diminishing, and so we're excluding that's right. that audience as well. And that's just silly. <laughs> that's right. And I think that it's so it's such an easy fix. It's such an easy problem to solve. 
when you're in the planning stages of any production, the creative team, the producers just need to add accessibility into uh, their budget. It's an important part. It's not. A, it's a line item. It's not an afterthought. So that's what the problem is. When it becomes an afterthought, producers go, oh, gosh, I have to pay for that. I can't afford it. I just don't want everyone to go see the show. Right. Yeah. And so you're... You're on Broadway in Children of a Lesser God. What's next for you guys? Do you know? Josh, do you know what's coming up next for you? Uh, no. I am fully consumed in this experience. <laughs> this is everything that I have to give. Is theater a thing that it is important to you to come back to? Mm-hmm. It, the, so it has, theater has not been the center of my working life, but it has been very specific in that every time that I've done a play it is because there's some specific question I've been asking myself that I'm trying to figure out and the experience what was of the question in Children of a Lesser God communication okay yeah Great. Um, so the last show that Kenny and I did was specifically about racial and sexual dynamics in America circa Obama's first election and as a white guy trying to navigate the modern world that was very specifically a moment and this is pre-Trump, but a moment where I was like, it, you know, I, I need I need these two months of my life inside of this space to explore how this communication is breaking down and and how we push through it. And so in this, this is much more about the communication dynamic between a man and a woman, where there's even the desire for love, right? These people are deeply, madly in love with each other and still get to a place where they can't truly see each other or accept what they see at that place. And so I guess it's just an iteration of the same question. But the coming back to theater is, you know, you you spend so much time inside of the rehearsal space and every word on the page is precious and it's there for a reason, which is not the case in film and television. The writers would tell you differently, but, <laughs> but that's just not the case. Um, and to have the opportunity to dive in under the eyes of somebody like Kenny with Lauren now to, you know, it's that every specific moment has richness and to have the, the opportunity, if you take it, to dive into that specificity and all of the beauty and ugliness that that entails is important to me. And it's what keeps the fire lit. And Lauren, what comes next for you? What are you an actor now? What will you What will you do? Fucking right, do she's know? an actor. Just yeah. wait till you see her on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, I'm just going to say, echo what Josh said. I am focused totally on this production. I am focused on each show of this production, each performance. And I think about what will I discover tonight? That's the other thing that I have to say I love about theater is it's not a frozen production. It just keeps growing. And so what someone sees one night might be completely different than what they see on the other night because of the experience we're having, the things we're discovering that particular night. So that's what I'm focusing on right now, you know, seeing what I will keep finding out and learning. Well, I can't wait to see it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for being Thank here. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Candace. And thanks for, I can't wait to see the show. It's at Studio 54, um, and everyone should go see it. Opening April thanks, 11. Guys. Come April on down. Yep. Yes, yes. Yep. See you there. That was Joshua Jackson and Lauren Ridloff, the stars of the Broadway revival of Children of a Lesser God, now playing at Studio 54. On the next episode of StageCraft, I'll talk to Lynn Nottage, 
the two-time Pulitzer winner whose latest play, Malima's Tale, is now playing off-Broadway. Until then, see you at the theater. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.